Hey everyone, Mark D here, IT guy, dad, and generally bad movie nerd. How are you doing? Are you doing well? I'm genuinely curious, but as this is a one-way medium, maybe you can check in with yourself real quick. And uh, just take this time, this minute here, and really examine your feelings right now. Okay, I'm going to talk about a movie. This movie came out in 1993. It's a baseball movie, and the time period was pretty competitive. In 92, we had The Babe, Mr. Baseball, and A League of Their Own. Rookie of the Year came out in July of 93, following this movie's April release. 94 saw Little Big League, a vehicle for the Minnesota Twins. Angels in the Outfield, a vehicle for the team then named the California Angels, and the Tommy Lee Jones-led biopic Cobb about the controversial record-setter Ty Cobb. This movie is The Sand Lot, and it's more about life than it is about baseball. Yes, right off the bat, we're talking baseball. Baseball is maybe a pure sport, the perfect sport, definitely the thinking man's sport. There is immense nuance and depth of the strategy when played at a high level. But as an amateur or, you know, at a children's level, it really is just super rewarding to get a big hit, a home run, or to make a big catch, or, or whatever big event happens. I think that there are a few sensations more rewarding than hitting a home run. When you, when you hit it, you just know, right? When you hit a home run, you realize, you fully understand that this ball is, fuck you, out of here. The at-bat, the most common event of the baseball game, is also one of the most tense games of cat and mouse in professional sports. Think of fencing, but both you and your opponent each get exactly one move each round. There's a vicious amount of physical energy expended in an at-bat, and the results can be brutal but more often than not, they are the subsequently graceful events of a gentleman's game. America's pastime, a sport very popular in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Not without its detractors, fair enough. A lot of people, not baseball fans, that's okay. It has a devoted following internationally. In countries such as Mexico, Cuba, La República Dominicana, Japan, and Korea, or Nippon and Korea, I would assume. I actually don't know how to say Korea as a Korean would say Korea. Flying by the seat of the pants right now. It's, it's late. I'm just trying to get this done. But this could simply be a matter of national identities and ties with America. And it's anti-colonial or you know, to be fair, neo-colonial nature. 
and its projected ideas of freedom and liberty. I don't think it is, though. Um, things can maybe start one way, but the ball doesn't keep rolling on inertia alone. Baseball is a game that requires intense focus and skill. The most atomic operation of the sport of baseball is use of the bat to hit a pitched ball. This is an event that takes place in less than half a second and genuinely tests the human body's reaction speed. At 95 miles per hour, a baseball is nothing more than a red and white blur that can break both bats and bones. Yet this feat is performed at an unreasonable minimum, this has never happened, 54 times every baseball game. Every pitch is a chess move, and every starting lineup is a strategy. And with 162 games in a season, there is plenty of statistical data to sift through. But this data, as, as vast as it is, it can't quantify the experience of the game. The statistics cannot tell us what the fiercely competitive, right, facing off of a pitcher and a batter one-on-one -on -one can lead to in a child's life. It can't tell us how many people feel being a part of a team or, or you know, what that may mean for them growing up. Baseball is one of the few sports where failing two-thirds of the time makes you one of the best players to have ever played the game. Baseball is a sport that gives the players and the spectators time to breathe, to let the moment sink in. It's a game where you simultaneously need to study everything and then just let go and let instinct take over. The Sand Lot, Sand Lot, I have a problem saying that. The Sand Lot is about life. It's about being a kid. It's got baseball. It's got. Well, there's a lot going on. It's got more than a little bit of it in it. And by it, I mean the book by Stephen King. More than a little bit of it. That is a tongue twister if I've ever heard one. Stephen King is notoriously a baseball fan. I believe he's a Red Sox fan, as a matter of fact. Also played in a band with Dave Barry, but I suppose that's another story for another time. By me talking about a movie that usually means I'm going to talk about something else, and my theory for this is that it's the easy way out, and I'm probably not great at being a critic, per se, in the quote-unquote academic sense, but I'm a person who, who likes things and likes to get into them. A dilettante. And that has, you know, a negative connotation now, but that's that's all just gatekeeping. You know, you can't be a thing because you're not doing it perfectly. That's not an argument. Anyway, 
I'm a lot like Stephen King in that we're both tall. But It, the 1985 book, and It, chapters 1 and 2, are similar, but they're not the same thing. So It, the book, uses the idea of an otherworldly being who can shapeshift to prey on kids and just so happens to frequently take the form of a clown because that's a thing that Stephen King thinks kids liked. In our modern, shitty, internet, snarky Twitter day and age, we, we hate clowns, we think they're dumb, so that doesn't land for us, right? But it wasn't written for us. When I read It, I was, I was actually very close to the same age that the characters were in 1955, and that, that book was not for kids. Or, or for young adults either, right? That book was for uh, full-ass, grown-ass adults who missed out while being kids and then missed being kids when they were adults. That's who that book was for. Mike Hanlon, right, is uh, somewhat of an audience surrogate as he's the closest thing to a narrator that the book has. Mike Hanlon provides the Dairy Interludes, which, contrary to their names, are probably the most central components to several of the themes in the book. And this is very much a Watchmen uh, Black Freighter scenario, if you're familiar with that. These take place over roughly the previous century and investigate past instances of significant violence in the township of Derry, Maine. There was one instance of a fur trapper, or logger, I mean, I'm fuzzy on this, uh, in the 1800s that he just went straight murdering a bunch of people at, at, at a bar, you know. And maybe that one is as much about alcoholism and substance abuse and about how this row of bars was, was meant to cater to these loggers and, and to take their money for inebriation, but little else. Stephen King had some substance abuse issues uh, for a bit, alcohol being one of them. Another dairy interlude, there was the murder of Adrian Mellon, a homosexual man, which was essentially a hate crime. The murderers threw his body over a bridge, and Pennywise was reportedly there and took a bite of him, because it seems that Pennywise is this weird negative energy that, you know, super spoiler alert, right, we learn is really what it, what it, what it feeds off of. We f it feeds off of that fear, that hate, just negative, negative things. And Pennywise has been there since roughly the beginning of time. Lying not entirely dormant, but invisible on a cycle of activation and then of hibernation. Very similar to Eugene Victor Toombs, if you've seen the first season of The X-Files. But the town, the town is built around Pennywise. Pennywise is the landmarks of the town, and his goals and his purpose, or its goals and its purpose, is to perpetuate this hate and violence among the population. Child abuse, substance abuse, 
and racism. The fire at the black spot is a very specific and on-the-nose point of racism. If you're curious, you can check it out, but Mike Hanlon uh, deals with racism very overtly in the form of the bullying by Henry Bowers and his crew. To think that this book was written and released in 1986 and we, we have issues like this going on is telling. It's over 30 years later. To think that saying Black Lives Matter would upset someone in 2020 is telling. This book was written in the 80s, but it's set mostly in the 50s. Yet its themes of systemic illness still reverberate with current events. As a whole, I don't think that it's wrong or off on any of these accounts. I've only seen It Chapter 1. I haven't seen It Chapter 2. But I sincerely doubt that it goes too far away from its more straightforward adventure horror movie structure to put forth these themes. You know, that being said, A Kid in Dairy wasn't always the worst, and there's a genuine innocence and purity of being 12 and roaming through the town with your friends on bikes and making your own fun. Indeed, this is where the sand lot thrives. It's 90% exactly that, and 10% anything sad or troubling. And not much was very troubling, but it was more than a little bittersweet. I have a long relationship with this movie, having had the VHS from, from when it was available, basically. And it's, it's not a perfect movie, but it brings up and brings out so much about being young and playing baseball with your friends and learning about the world and having adventures. Roger Ebert has a few quotes in his review, and they are fantastic. I think I'll be pulling two, and the one that I want right now is, and I start, I, I quote, This is not your standard movie about kids and baseball. It's so unconventional, it doesn't even end with the Sandlot team winning the big game. This movie doesn't even have a big game. The one game they play is a pushover. The movie isn't about winning and losing. It's about growing up and facing your fears. And as the kids try one goofy plan after another to get the ball back, the story gently leaves gently leaves the realm of possible and ventures into the exaggerations common to all childhood legends. Stephen King's book, It, was like... What if those childhood legends were real, but also what if it was a metaphor for everything that you know that's been wrong with your fucked up little small town for hundreds of years? Because people, humans, or humanity, or the nature of things is just a piece of shit. The Sandlot uses its powers for good, but somewhat in the inverse, watching it as an adult made me sad in a couple of ways. Not a deep, bad sadness, not a, a tragic despair, but I am now aware of many of the ways that life can play out, and, and it made me sad. 
when Scott Smalls says that his dad died when he was very young, that made me deeply, deeply sad. Being a father of a, of a sandy-haired little boy, I immediately put myself in his father's position, and he doesn't get to see his kid grow up. He doesn't get to teach him to throw a baseball. He doesn't get to be there for him when he gets into trouble. His dad died young, but his mom didn't remarry for years. And that also made me sad. Karen Allen's character, again, billed as mom, seems like one of the sweetest human beings in the world. And I, I see the tragedy that she faced and then the difficulty that she could have faced tr trying to raise a child alone. You know, and then on top of that, trying to date. And then I see Bill. And, you know, Bill's not a bad guy, per se. This movie has no real bad guys. But Bill is disengaged from Scott. Scott's around, but Bill is preoccupied. He's got his, his baseball stuff, and, and he works a lot, right? And I see some of myself in Bill, and I... I cannot help but be sad. So it was unexpected that I was this sad right at the beginning of this movie. I'm thinking that this is basically the up montage, and I just completely missed it when I was a kid. But this movie operates above and beyond the adult way of thinking. I shall now pulleth thine second quote. And I quote, There was a moment in the film when Rodriguez hit a line drive directly at the pitcher's mound, and I ducked and held up my mitt, and then I realized that I didn't have a mitt, and it was also then that I also realized how completely this movie had seduced me with its memories of what really matters when you are 12. So I don't actually remember this part, but like Roger Ebert, I was completely engrossed in the film. I guess in a way I've never really given up being 12. I'm up in the middle of the night right now and, and on my computer pursuing some objective that no one in my life really understands or accepts. And that even I don't fully understand, but it's probably better than doing nothing. And me at 12 was not very different at all whatsoever. It's kind of a trend, right? In the Sandlot, there are no winners or losers. It's an imaginary game, and the kids all have a lot of fun playing it. Success isn't measured by your ERA or slugging percentage. It's by how much fun you had. Translating this to an adult, there are no winners or losers, and in retrospect, I realized that no, I didn't necessarily have to translate that actual part. But it's not about the money that you made or the car that you drive. The real treasure, <laughs> the real treasure is the friends you made along the way. And this comes back at the end. WMDZ sees nuts.
Mad Dog Mark D here, talking about the absolute unit. Getting Tommy John's. Will he be back on the mound? Coming on in five minutes. A good chunk of the sand lot takes from the setting. Not the sand lot itself. A forgotten, empty lot that maybe years ago was some type of baseball field, but wildly in disrepair. And I think that, that making it look that much like a baseball field was probably a studio note. If I could project that into the real world, it would look less like a baseball field than it actually did. But in going back to this being like Stephen King's It, I think that it may have been inspired by the makeshift baseball field by the truck depot where the one dude who shows up like a zombie, and I think, I think this is a Stanley Uris uh, storyline. The one dude tells him, or, well, it can't be Stanley Uris if he shows up as a zombie, but maybe he showed up as a zombie as a kid. I'm fuzzy on this. I haven't read the book in some years. But one of the brothers that owns the track, the, the, the Tracker Brothers, right? Uh, I want to say that's what it was called. But he talks to him about balls, right? You got to hit the ball. You got to keep your eye on the ball and uh, choke up on the ash handle, right? This kind of New England affectation accent. I don't know. Maine is essentially another country to me. I've never been. Tweet at me. Let me know what I got wrong there. <laughs> Just let me know. Hey, you're a fucking asshole. But if you don't tell me, I won't know. Not that I think that I'm cool. The, the name is a joke. I, I hope you get that. But again, like it, the movie is set many years ago in a more innocent time in America. It had a 1955-1985 setting, but the sand lot is a lot like a 1962-1982 setting. You know, doing some napkin math, and I'm really trying to hit all of the annunciation. It's not modern day, because they are, you know, what, 12 or whatever at the time, and it's 1962, and, you know, you can still be a good ball player at 32. So I gave it 20 years, you know. But 1962, cock it and pull it, 1962 was a weird time in America. The Cold War and the offshoot conflict of the space race were ongoing. Kennedy just dropped the embargo on Cuba. John Glenn is the first American to orbit the Earth. The Negro League still fucking exists, even though Jackie Robinson made his major league debut in 1947. So, you know, things are going well in that regard. Yeah. West Side Story wins Best Picture. Prayer in public school is ruled unconstitutional. AT&T launches the first communications satellite called Telstar. And just after that summer, JFK delivers the very famous, at least to me, speech of, We choose to go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Um, that's a bad JFK impression, but 
that's the one I got. The first black student registers at the University of Mississippi. Johnny Carson becomes the host of The Tonight Show, and he will hold that post for like 30 fucking more years. The Cuban Missile Crisis happens that fall, and the world is put at the brink of nuclear war. Mariner 2 flies by Venus. Martin K. Spector invents the Interrobang, and it has yet to be widely adopted. I'm so sorry. Helen Gurley Brown publishes Sex and the Single Girl. And rest easy, rest assured, no. I tried to piece together a Benny and the Jets kind of thing, but the song doesn't come out until 74. And the Jets and West Side Story were the white guys, so I mean, I gave up. But, you know, Benny the Jet Rodriguez is a badass nickname is a badass nickname. And kids love Jets. The Bell X1 was already a thing. Jets were definitely, they were cool at the time. Jets are cool. David Mickey Evans is co-author and director of The Sandlot. There was a small 10-minute featurette on the Blu-ray, and dude had baseball hats made for the production, so he's obviously a fan. The movie feels autobiographical in some ways, but like Stephen King, I think David Mickey Evans has some weird childhood demons going on. His previous screenplay was Radio Flyer, and in Radio Flyer, a family consisting of mom, two sons, and a stepdad moved to a new town. And the older brother starts to turn their wagon, Radio Flyer, into a plane to be able to fly his younger brother away from their abusive stepfather. And all I can say to that is, holy shit. Fucked up. The Sandlot, though, again, is using that power for good. But there is there's definitely something going on here. Evans also directed First Kid. A couple of the Beethoven movies, which must have been torture because it's fucking wall-to-wall -wall dogs and never use animals in a movie if you can fucking help it. And he also directed a bunch of direct-to-video movies like The Sandlot 2, which I would actually be curious to watch, and Ace Ventura Pet Detective Jr., which I would prefer not to watch, and a movie called The Last Season where Sean Astin, the Rudy, or Samwise Gamgee, that we all know and love, becomes the coach of a high school baseball team. And uh, so interestingly enough, he has a co-director credit for a movie called, oh, Squints 2. And what the fuck is that? It is, and I'm very serious here, apparently a Chinese sequel to um, I would imagine The Sandlot 2, but it is a, a mostly, if not entirely, Chinese cast, Chinese sequel to The Sandlot movies. There was another Sandlot movie, actually, called, like, uh, Sandlot Heading Home, where they recast everyone except for Squints, and apparently Luke Perry was in that one. Cool, I guess. But it involved time travel, 
and it makes very, very minimal sense uh, from from where I'm standing. But I kind of want to see O squints too. There's also some kind of Sandlot prequel in some type of pre-production. I mean, you, you can't do a sequel because it'll be a shitty time period, but, you know, Watergate and Energy Crisis and things. But doing a prequel is, is what? How? Who? James Earl Jones' character? You know, Bill? The least sympathetic dude on the screen? James Earl Jones did show up for the sequel, so maybe that character, right, that would be kind of bittersweet because we know how his story ends. But in, I don't know, they would probably pull, I would assume, an American Graffiti 2 in that. And uh, more American Graffiti, I should say. I'm such an asshole. In more American Graffiti, we already know that Terry is lost in Vietnam, missing in action. And we know that John Milner is uh, killed by a drunk driver. But we don't know how that happens, and we see how that happens, and it kind of subverts our expectations a little bit. So maybe doing that could be a thing. Anthony B. Richmond was the DP on on this show, and he was the DP on Candyman, and you know that's cool. I would have I would have figured they would have filmed in California since it was set in the valley but the movie filming locations that i found were actually all in utah some friday the 13th were filmed there too so must be a popular spot i would imagine that they had been looking for some cloud cover or overcast days as there is definitely noticeable at least the blu-ray variability in the picture of some of the outdoor shots some of the shots and uh, some of the scenes look completely fucking flattened and smashed. Like, they had never heard of the word contrast. But other shots and scenes look great, and I'm fairly confident that they were just pulling the hell out of, out of the film to try to save what they could. Filming wides outdoors in direct sunlight aren't always terribly flattering, and for some of those, they definitely wanted it to look a bit more even, so fucking, hey, mission accomplished, I guess. It was the tyranny of film. It was, it was so different, and I doubt that they could fly something up to shade the entire wide shot, right? Because it's the field and then the houses behind the field. That doesn't seem particularly practical. The shadows are, are still hard as hell, but it's, it's so fucking flat that they had to have been pulling this film to the dick. The alternative to, to pulling the film and making it look this way was to just not see anything in the shadows ever. Unfortunately. I'm not mad about it, it's just jarring to see in, in 1080p. I had also just calibrated my monitor with my old kind of color monkey smile, and I hit the, the fucking stand again. Yeah, you can hear that. So I was paying extra attention. Michael A. Stevenson was the cutter on this flick, and he did a cool job. There were a couple of scenes, and I believe the, the 4th of July game and the game against the Tigers uh, were the two 
points where they broke 180. They broke the 180 degree rule. I don't know if that was from coverage in the edit or if, if the storyboard was, was like that, but when I'd already had a mental model of the field, right, that, that shit made me go cross-eyed. I had to stop and think about where the camera was in every shot uh, because in those sequences, it was just, it was not making a lick of sense to me. And I remember specifically seeing the shot of, uh, yeah, yeah, looking up at the fireworks and Benny ostensibly running the bases in the wrong direction behind him. And I was so confused. Turns out, you know, credit where credit is due, they did their diligence and yeah, yeah, had done a full 180 and Benny's direction was correct. Good on this crew. I don't think that I noticed films breaking 180 too often, if at all. But I guess having been in such a space in person, right, mapping that meat space onto a mental representation, and then breaking 180 was like throwing throwing a syntax error. And I had to, to pick through it in the debugger a little bit. And that being said, breaking 180 was a stylistic choice. They, in, in, in the ball game against the Tigers, they kind of match up to push things to the center of the frame. It's a very dynamic thing. It's all diagonals. It's good energy for the montage. And then in the 4th of July game, they use it to great effect to show the disconnect from the game to be enraptured, to be immersed into these fireworks in the 4th of July and, and you know, a bit uh, immersed and enraptured in the idea of America, which baseball represents significantly. Our way into the story is the aforementioned Scotty Smalls. Scott is, and this is mostly self-fulfilling, as his mother so aptly puts it, an egghead. In the 60s, and really up to, you know, until maybe the 2000s, any child with any enthusiasm or love for any any type of remotely STEM or academic hobby, which in the case of Scott Smalls is, is somewhat generalized engineering, right? He, um, the, it was common to just be like, haha, nerd, like, fuck you for liking things. But Scotty doesn't know, you know, Scotty doesn't know that life is more than playing with the rectors in your bedroom. <laughs> He always stays at home, and his family moved to the valley, and Scotty doesn't know! But don't tell Scotty. Anyway, Scotty is a shy boy with no friends who has just moved to a new town for summer. That's a hugely specific thing for kids, especially at the time where kids could just roam freely and nothing bad would ever happen to them, and that was me being facetious. But he lives roughly across the street from Benny the Jet Rodriguez, who is, from personal experience, 
clearly the only one who is actually good at the sport. I say this as someone who grew up with people who would subsequently become professional baseball players, and it's usually very apparent who has a chance and who doesn't even from an early age. I have some friends, and uh, there are a couple. I have some friends currently, not that I grew up with, but there are a couple, and their kids are really coordinated. Like, my kid is pretty all right at throwing, but homie cannot, he's not grokking, like, catch. He just kind of waits for it to hit him, and he reacts to it. And it's like, no, 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 you gotta gotta watch it. You gotta gotta watch it and, and get it before it gets there. But I fear he gets that from me. I had a friend who, in elementary school, had a birthday, and it was baseball-themed, but I hadn't yet started playing baseball. And he would always remind me about how agonizing it was to watch me attempt to hit a ball that that my dad was was basically lobbing my way. Uh, Maybe that guy wasn't such a great friend and just flexed on me every chance he got. I'm not sure. And honestly, the memory of that time gets really fuzzy, but I didn't forget him telling me that as an adult. So Benny is one of those kids that took to baseball like a fish to water. He played every position, hit like a monster, and was very fast. This is legitimately what it's like when you're a kid. There's the Scott Smalls of the world, the the middle-tier guys, you know, above them, i.e. everyone else in the sandlot, and then there's the Bennies. This particular Benny, however, is pure of heart. Up until here, everything is, like, no shit not fucking around real, right? So let me just mention the other dudes in passing, because other than than Squints and maybe Hambino, they're, they're not terribly important to the plot of the movie, but they are super fun. Michael Squints Paladoris is literally what I thought Richie Tozier from Stephen King's It looked like. Acted like and everything. It, chapter one, cast an actor that I like, Finn Wolfhard, but an actor whose description I didn't, you know, that it didn't match with the headcanon of what I thought Richie was like. Squints is legitimately and actually my Richie. He's a bit of a smartass, small, Massive, black-framed glasses, and has objectively some of the most serious guts of anyone on the team. And in this movie, this is uh, problematic, as Squints really puts a, a strong move on Wendy Peppercorn, and it is, strictly from my understanding, sexual assault. But there's also a weird power disparity, where Squints is a young, small geek. And Wendy is, as described by future Scott, a goddess at some point, you know, if memory serves. But, but she's older, and it's a, whole, it's a whole thing. But the weirdest part is she's, like, super mad. And even Smalls in voiceover, like future Smalls, is acknowledging that she should have kicked the ever-loving shit out of this asshole but she doesn't. And the movie shows that, like, kind of right after the incident, like, immediately after, she's cool with it? Like, she's she's into it? And and then Squints and her get married? 
And apparently Squints is just super horny because in voiceover, Scott is like, and they have six kids, you know, as if there's no such thing as a prophylactic or other forms of contraception. What does that mean? What is that? What? I don't think I share the same experience as a lot of media portrays in terms of being a young man, but like in the evaluation of having kids, I, I had them when I was good and ready, you know, and, and six is too many. Six is way too many. I can't handle six. Um, some people probably can. I cannot. But hey, hey, if, if all of your kids are, are just amazing and they all just slot right in, go for it. Whatever. You know, additionally, there's Hamilton Ham Porter, who kind of steals the show. You know, dude is legit hilarious, played by Patrick Renna. There's Alan Yaya McLennan, who's a bit of a jerk. Uh, Kenny DeNunez, who is pretty chill and also the only black kid of the group. No one calls him the N-word and harasses him throughout the movie, so it's either just a very, very chill town, or more likely they just left that stuff out because it's depressing as fuck. Bertram Grover Weeks is the tall, lanky first baseman, and he's got some jokes. Uh, Timmy and Tommy repeat Timmons, <laughs> who repeats everything that Timmy says, are, are purely comic relief, but I think that they live right behind the sandlot. I think that their house is the one with the treehouse that neighbors the junkyard where the beast lives. It's not 100% clear, but the way that Timmy seems in charge with the whole beast fiasco implies, to me at least, that this is his house. They're fun and all, but except for maybe the great Hampino and Squints, they are ultimately replaceable. I'm not saying that these actors didn't do the job because for sure they did. I'm saying that the script had a fairly generic team to support the two main characters and that the heavy lifting was done by Ham and Squints. I genuinely liked all the characters on the team and if we could get like a Netflix Sandlot with a new cast for that time period that had like nine episodes maybe because there are nine positions in a baseball diamond or, or maybe ten because you can do that final team episode uh, kind of like Glow. You know, but if we get some Orange is the New Black backstory and investment, you know, maybe 11 episode, right? Because you get the freebie episode one, and then you get a big finale for episode 11. I'd dig that. I'd be into that. Uh, Benny, it seems, is the platonic ideal of a human being. The uh, philosopher king, the uh, servant leader, perhaps. He is just, he is cool as shit talented as fuck and and he sees scotty's desire to play ball and instead of extinguishing the passion of an amateur encourages him and assists him in overcoming you know encourages him and assists him in overcoming one the internal bias that he already possesses vis-a-vis -vis considering himself an egghead and two the external bias that the rest of the group shows by assuming that he is physically without talent and equating that to his value as a friend and as a person. In addition to the care that the script takes for characters, there is care in the handling of the plot. 
the movie in the outset tells us that Smalls was in the biggest pickle he'd ever been in. The voiceover goes on to say that it's the biggest pickle we'd ever been in. Pickle is American slang for trouble, generally. But also if you're, you know, some fucking boomer. However, the movie also takes the time in the introduction to introduce us to the pickle as used in the movie as a baseball term. Or, as I grew up with, the rundown, right? Ham yells, Pickle! And they clear the bench for a reason that I could only chalk up to, you know, dramatics. But I'll read the Wikipedia entry for this as uh, the Wikipedia entry for Rundown. As it's probably much more concise than what I could come up with. And I quote, It is a situation in the game of baseball that occurs when a base runner is stranded between two bases also known as no man's land and is in jeopardy of being tagged out to explain tagged out is basically that as as a base runner if someone touches you with the ball or with a glove that has the ball enclosed you're you're out i won't be so pedantic for once to explain outs but assume that it's you know, it's almost like the game of cricket, but it takes a huge and wild turn at some point. There's an opening game, an opening in the, in the movie. The movie opens and they're playing a game where they're playing against another team, which is a thing that they rarely do. And they were, they were dressed very well, again, a thing that they rarely do. It's this weird artifice that, that's there mostly to introduce the team in the game. but also to introduce the pickle to the normal audience. And they'll reintroduce the pickle when they play another team around the middle of the movie, and then again in the climax of the movie where Benny pickles the beast. I, I like that care. I like setting up Scotty to be an erector set nerd and then using that in an attempt to reacquire the ball. Right, that's super fun. It never um, leaves us wondering. We are prepared. We know. None of that work is done with the other characters, hence, you know, my diatribe of how replaceable they are. But we're also dealing with a kid's movie. And having a kid, I found that their lack of appreciation for things is expected. But the depth of it is sometimes shocking. I'm sure every exec is saying, you know, make every kid's movie as dumb as possible at all times. And while on a fundamental level, I, I disagree with this. And, you know, I'll point out the success that Warner Brothers has had with their animation properties in the 90s. I also have a real IRL child, and I fully fucking get it. I don't appreciate it. I don't like it, but I understand it. They also introduce the, the PF Flyers here. It's, a, it's not quite an insert, but it's kind of a close-up on the shoes. And Benny wears them all the time. He actually always wears PF Flyers, but 
he breaks out a fresh pair for pickling the beast. And that is a neat gimmick. Uh, and that is... But he breaks out a fresh pair for pickling the beast. And that's a neat gimmick. You know, Pumped Up Kicks, 1962 version. I guess what I'm going for here, and not to fully nitpick the plot, because ultimately it's not worth it. But it's that the, the script ultimately takes care to be consistent. And I appreciate that, and I respect it. It is a kid's movie, and I'm sure the messaging is, you know, get it done as, as cheap as possible, kids don't care. But when I see attention to the theme, to the subject matter, and to the consistency of it, it makes me that much happier. It makes me happy that outside of the studio distribution, money-making, ticket-taking, VHS-selling economy, there is some appreciation for the making of the movie, the craft of the movie, that the final dollar isn't everything. There are some kids' materials that don't make a fucking lick of sense, and no one gives a shit. How the fuck is a Golden Retriever going to play baseball? Yet, that movie exists. The Sandlot is, is not that. The Sandlot is, is more. The Sandlot is a creator's honest feelings, dramatized, and put on the screen. And I think, personally, nothing is more telling of this than The Babe. In terms of baseball, The Babe might be the first superstar. And I'm basing this on how he has withstood the test of time. George Herman Ruth, the Titan of Terror, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Clout, the Sultan of Swat, the Great Bambino, the idolatry of Babe Ruth, the absolute hero worship. This is the faith that only a child can have in a person because to that child, they're more than a person. They are a figure set in the purest of marble as the most perfect sculpture upon Olympus. Titanomachia was literally just a Babe Ruth at bat. The Golden Fleece was a pintar rag that Babe Ruth wiped his bats down with. When you're a kid, your dad is a superhero, but... Babe Ruth was Prometheus bringing baseball to the masses. This is a lot of bombast here, but for these characters, these kids, it's the honest truth. That's cemented when, in the dark night of the soul, kind of part of the hero's journey, which medium happens, Benny has a dream visitation from the babe himself. When I was a kid, Jose Canseco, or Jose Canseco, right, was my Babe Ruth. I knew who Babe Ruth was, but Jose Canseco grew up in the neighborhood that I lived in, and he was from where my family was from, and he was in the 4040 club, and that's 40 stolen bases and 40 home runs in a season, which is pretty fucking exclusive 
and he was one of the most popular baseball players of of the time. I remember seeing his twin brother, Ozzy Canseco, at the batting cages that I would go to. My parents have the picture of him and I still to this day. When you're a kid, your heroes are impossible. They are unimaginable. They are walking mountains. When you grow up, you realize that they are, they are indeed mortal. I'm taller now than Jose Canseco, and, and that's telling to me. That mediocre, unimpressive, and utterly forgettable me is bigger than my hero. I think the point that I'm making is that now, as an adult, I see that Jose Canseco seems to get Botox, took performance-enhancing drugs, battered his wife, has had custody issues with his kids, and generally has had some issues. And I'm not dissing him. His life is his own, and, and mine isn't, you know, in the sum of it, so much better, if at all. But the knowledge and understanding of this, my, my change in perspective, changes everything. He wasn't impossibly large. I was small. His life wasn't the model of perfection. I just didn't know about anything about life in general, or, or his life in, in particular. The Sandlot is, is void of this phenomenon completely. Almost. The Beast is the closest thing to this realization. The team, rational Scotty Smalls and immortal Benny Rodriguez included, have built up the Beast to be a creature of literally mythic proportions. The movie does zero fucking around with the Beast and they make him, if you're a kid, right, insanely scary and fiercely intimidating. If you're an adult, you can see the deliberate use of an exaggeration with a large, kind of puppeted dog viewed through the lens of boyhood storytelling. It doesn't really matter that it makes no sense. The, the characters, they want to be scared. They want to be excited. They want the world to contain mysteries and horrors just outside of their experience. And I'm extrapolating this from my own memories, because in retrospect, I think that's what I wanted. That's why I liked the ideas of aliens coming from another planet to start a conspiracy. And sports are, are maybe the, the socially acceptable form of that narrative. The evolution of Norse, Greek, and Roman gods coming down to Earth to... I don't know, you know, throw, throw a ball really fucking hard or something, run fast, jump high, whatever. But there's, there's, there's more to it, more to life. If 12-year-old kids watched The Prestige, 100% of them would say the machine worked because that's the thing that's fucking cool. The Beast is essentially the plot machine and the signed baseball becomes the MacGuffin. Hijinks ensue, and it's quite fun. But the showdown, worthy of the oral tradition that days of future past Scott Smalls is recounting to us, which in turn 
is suspended in celluloid for our eyes to perceive as a motion picture is literally the twelfth labor of Hercules. And maybe there are some others in the movie, but I can only really pin two on the movie, maybe. And maybe the other ones are a bit more abstract, but Hercules, you know, in obtaining the girdle, the girdle of Hippolyta, actually falls to the mutual mistrust and paranoia that Hercules and the Amazons had for each other, and then he bashes her head in with like a rock or something, and then just takes it. Going over the labor of, 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 of Hercules, it's, it's posited as being this cool and epic kind of journey, or the legendary journey, if you will. But it's really just an Assassin's Creed game's worth of fetch quests. He has three moves, kill, capture, or steal, and it just fucking sucks. The only one that even remotely makes sense in, in terms of this is, is pickling the beast. I will not call it entering the domain of the beast or anything reasonable. Pickling the beast is, in my opinion, the only proper term for this event. Benny unveils a brand new, pristine pair of PF flyers, and while they'd been featured, and while they'd been featured prominently in several shots of Benny performing feats of athleticism already, this is when Scotty McFly clues us in on the shoes, and he says, "Shoes guaranteed." to make a kid run faster and jump higher. Benny hops the fence, and all of a sudden, it's a showdown. And you know what they say, it's always high noon somewhere. This is maybe a little closer to a relative of Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead, but it's very much a Western. Right, the music shifts out of nowhere, and we see Benny and the Beast, the actual Beast as an English Mastiff, not that Mastiff puppet. He's big. And uh, Benny performs an exhibition of speed to reacquire the ball and escape. But the beast cannot be bested and gives chase by vaulting over the walls of his prison, as if he had just never had the motivation to escape. This is actually the only part of the movie I don't like. The chase scene is partially an homage to Ferris Bueller, the Ferris Bueller running scene at the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But ultimately, it's the most late 80s, early 90s kids movie part of this, you know, early 90s kids movie. I would peg the sequence for a Beethoven movie or or Dunstan checks in or something just like equally slapstick. But the end result is that Benny runs the dog and the team back to the Sandlot. and jumps back into the junkyard with the beast, with the beast, needing for speed, in hot pursuit. The fence in these activities falls over on the beast, and in this we witness its vulnerability, its reality, that it isn't an enormous guardian of a hellish metal refuse landscape, but instead a dog who is hurt. Scotty does the protagonist heart of gold thing and attempts to lift the fence but can't. Scott and Benny, together, however, are able to lift it up. 
the rest of them Sandlot boys are awestruck and otherwise immobile. But Scott and Benny have indeed captured the metaphorical Cerberus and brought it back, which is roughly the twelfth labor of Hercules. And Benny was the one that lifted it. Scott actually couldn't do it on his own. So that solidified Benny's kind of Creek God equivalence in the story of the movie in my mind. The dog's name, as we find out later, is Hercules, and Scotty comments on that in the voiceover. And I want to take a second to point out that the twelfth labor and basically all labors of Hercules were complete bullshit. I watched a lot of Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, starring Kevin Sorbo, and that's my Hercules, but in, in the literature, Hercules kind of sucks, and legit dude was a shit show everywhere he went. If he showed up at, like, the big building of Jason Manzukas, he'd be all like, suck my dick, Gattaca, and would just knock it down. You know, Hercules, I guess, met his match when he was, quote-unquote, driven mad or whatever and killed his wife and kids and then did penance with his cousin, uh, King Eurystheus, who was, a, who, was a, who was a fucking real piece of work, that, that guy. He really was something else. That dude, you know, that's the dude that wanted things killed or taken, but Hercules, in classic Hercules fashion, killed a lot of times when taken would have just worked. And it's a whole thing, and you can read about it, but I think the moral of the story is if you do bad shit, you will need to do worse shit to get yourself out of it, so don't even start. Again, it has been illustrated poorly because Hercules became the Montel Jordan of Greek gods and basically said, This is how we do it! Anyway, they meet mean Mr. Myrtle, which is actually James Earl Jones playing a blind guy. Turns out he's, he's sweet as hell and as intimidating as his voice is. Uh, he's a huge baseball fanatic, and when he hears the tale of these boys who knock on his door and say, we brought your dog back, he's, he's definitely amused. Um, be amused? More amused. More amused, I guess. Yeah, once he figures out <laughs> it was assigned to Babe Ruth Ball, he, uh, he laughs. Um, but he talks to the boys about George, and uh, in this movie and in this culture, talking the talk goes a long way. When he says George, he's signaling that he's in the know, and in the know that he he was boys with Babe Ruth, and that's saying a lot. It's not presented as such. It's presented pretty evenly that they aren't playing for tears. They're not trying to make you sad about Mr. Myrtle. But, um, you know, his character took a fastball to the head and went blind. And like that, there went his extremely successful baseball career. But he's not, he's not bitter about it. Actually, quite the opposite. He was, to use a popular baseball cliche, just happy to be there. And he thought fondly upon 
the time that he spent playing baseball and hanging out with the babe who had since passed. He welcomes the opportunity to talk about it and helps out Scott by giving him a one-up on the Babe Ruth ball, by giving him a ball signed by the entire team. And this was interesting to me because there is a, a weird economy happening here. To Mr. Myrtle, that's, that's some memorabilia that he's had for a bit, but you know, to be fair, he, he knew those people. So while it's a fond keepsake, it doesn't really have the same cachet to him as it would to, to a fan, if you get that, if you follow me, you know, so to speak. Not that he is not a fan, but that he has gleamed the cube. He's been there. And he also welcomes the opportunity to have someone in his life to talk to about baseball who is, at the very least, just as much of a fan of it as he is. Scott gets grounded, but with the boost up on the ball and the story, he connects with his stepdad, Bill, and that's somewhat telling. Bill's father gave him that, that Babe Ruth ball, and while, yes, it was completely destroyed by being in the beast's possession, it, it came back. Were I Bill, I would have had that ball on display next to the team ball, because Scott's story was exceptional. And in the bonding of father or, or surrogate father and son, I mean, that's saying a lot. But for Mr. Myrtle, the ball itself was not the valuable item. It was the friends he made along the way. It was his experiences, getting the ball, playing the game, he had a whole trophy case that, in and of itself, was not valuable in anything, but maybe in the financial sense, but was, was positively rich with ties to experiences and people long past, which are priceless and irreplaceable. And that part was sweet, but that part, it didn't get me. The part that got me was... The part that got me was the Sandlot team moving away. Once Scott hit the roster, it was set in stone. They didn't replace any of the kids that left. These are, are things out of your control as a kid, and your best friend may just up and disappear one summer. You don't know. And the sequence of, of the kids kind of going around the horn and disappearing really got to me. Narrator Scott also does end cards for the team, and, and it's sweet. Another kind of American graffiti thing, I feel. But he ends on Benny, and then we're back with Scott of Future Past, and he's at an L.A. Dodgers game with one Benny the Jet Rodriguez, number three. A pinch running in a tight game. Scotty, we see by his ugly-ass bass hat, is actually the radio broadcaster for the game. Future Benny steals home, I think. I mean, I don't fully remember right at this time, but through some mechanism, he scores, and, and it's lit, fam. The, the crowd goes wild, literally, but again, to use a cliche. But Benny looks up at the press box to see Scotty giving him the thumbs up. And that gets me every time. That, that naivety, that our, our childhood bonds, 
could still bind us. I know that it isn't entirely untrue, but it's definitely not as idealized as the circumstances of the sand lot make it out to be. Being a kid is weird. It's tough. And it doesn't stop happening all at once. I knew a George in high school, and the circumstances of meeting him in person were interesting. I had heard of him, and I'll get to that, but actually backed into his car by accident senior year. George had a little bit of a reputation, and he was definitely proud of his car. I was relatively new to driving, and I think the first day of school that year was one of the first times I'd driven alone. And my car was stick shift, not blaming it, painting a picture. This matters because one, I was inexperienced, and two, the car needs very deliberate input to do certain things. As I was backing out, and a kid walked right behind my car, which was very annoying because you're trying to leave school to go home, and people just keep walking past you instead of walking on the sidewalk or anything. It was, it was a phenomenon, and it would, it would piss me off. Every second counted trying to escape the school parking lot and the subsequent traffic on the way home. And as I was, you know, I had to kind of push the clutch in to stop from backing up, and, and I'd just look at him hard so that he understood, hey, you, you fucked up, man, so that he would understand that he fucked up. I feel a bump. And instantly I understand what had happened, right? I never put my other foot on the brake, right? I was going slow, but not slow enough to stop. And I had now rolled into a car behind me. The said kid, startled by the sound of polyurethane on polyurethane, looks over, assesses the situation, and says, Wow, you just hit the car. Good luck. I didn't know who was parked behind me, but I instantly knew the name. George didn't, did not go by George at all. In fact, I didn't know that his name was George until probably over a year after meeting him. But I knew him by reputation. He was a pitcher who came to my school with the express intention of playing ball for a winning team. But I met him that day, resigned to getting yelled at or, or getting the shit kicked out of me. Not that I was small or weak, quite the opposite. But I was quiet, and I hadn't been in any fights to speak of, so somebody who had definitely had the advantage on me. Resigned. I waited for George to show up, and as he's getting into his car, I said something along the lines of, Hey, I'm sorry, man. I, I accidentally backed into your car. And he looked at me. Minimal reaction. He walked up. He, he looked at his bumper. There was some paint but not much, and kind of flat affect. He said something along the lines of, oh, well, I was going to wash my car this weekend, so if that doesn't come off, I'll, I'll reach out to you. And, and I'm pretty sure I had given him my number at that point. And he never reached out about it. I think that, honestly, just a little bit of elbow grease settled it. But it was an inroads. I was, I was, I don't know, maybe just, the, the reactions from both parties, we were kind of like, hey, that guy's all right. And so, you know, we would hang out during lunch, and I had some peripheral connections to that group socially. Um, so that was my lunch group, essentially, from then on. 
but you know, and, and I'm sure that you can tell by my movie selections that I, I liked cars. I like cars, but back then I just had much more time to devote to the, the study and the reading. So that solidified me in the group somewhat. Uh, George had an interesting life after high school. He didn't play on the team, and he went to community college a bit, but that was never his thing. We had some parties, and I spent the night in his mom's driveway one time after thoroughly embarrassing myself by simultaneously puking and shitting in his bathroom. Spectacular. Uh, he ended up getting married and joined the Air Force, and he had a kid, and he got divorced. And we had grown apart as I had met someone and had my normal day job, but off he was to the service, and eventually he he got deployed overseas. And I think that he worked in EOD. I don't I don't recall. You know, I don't remember the specifics. But one day I get a message from one of my best friends, who I also hadn't seen in a bit, and he says, "Hey, I just saw on Facebook that that he died." His wife posted it, and he was here, he was home, and the service is tomorrow. And I, I said I'd go. And I went to the service completely dressed and unprepared. I remember I was in a navy blue polo and khakis because I had taken my lunch break away from work. But what I saw wasn't people from my high school or my town or just normal people. Uh, what I saw was a sea of... Air Force uniforms, and I walked in, and it was more of the same. The service was starting, but I, I, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't, aside from knowing that I don't belong here. Uh, I have this thing with death, and the culture is you, you walk up and you say, I'm so sorry for your loss, and then you, you walk away. But inside... I know that when I say I'm sorry for your loss, what I'm saying is I'm, I'm fucking useless. And this doesn't quite make sense to me, but I definitely could not or, or did not do anything to prevent this. And now I'm, I'm in your face about it. And, you know, on top of that, I hadn't seen George in a couple of years, so I felt like a complete faker. I felt like a fraud, a phony. And it's an anxiety that I have. And... And it overtook me, and I left. And I still have uh, the program from that. I still have a picture of him from that service, and I think about him often. But that's the second time I couldn't do the right thing in the wake of someone's death. Or at least the culturally right thing. I also knew a Benny. I knew a Benny very well. And I'll call him Benny from here on out just to, to keep things anonymous. For a while, I was very much Scott, and Benny was my friend. We were close, and our families were close. This all came from baseball. But this kid could legitimately do it all, and we were great friends. But we were going to different schools and hung out mostly on the weekends. As you get older... You know, things get more competitive and they get more focused. I rapidly, I think, did not fit the the social groups that Benny was in growing up, being more of the egghead. And um, in my early teens, I, I 
can only assume that I was just a giant freak that no one could really get a handle on, or at least that's what it felt like. But uh, then he ended up going to a few different high schools for the promise of playing baseball for a very successful team. Because he was many, right? Every position, hell of a hitter, you name it. Benny was always the star on on our teams, and, and he and I switched to the same high school around the same time, if memory serves. And I learned about because, or I learned about George, because when he came to my high school, he was expecting to have the number that Benny already had. The baseball rumor mill, the baseball rumor mill around here would put TMZ to shame. And the world is tiny. The baseball world is, like, minuscule. You know everybody, or you know somebody that knows somebody. And through that web, you know everybody. And it's just, it's fascinating how these things happen. But things started to go a little sideways for Benny, and he left my high school after being involved in an incident with controlled substances, to my knowledge. And I'm not one to ask somebody a very direct question like that, so I never got clarification on it, but that seemed to be the case. I also came to learn that his home life was not all it was cracked up to be, and our families also grew apart quite a bit. He had uh, scouts coming to look at him and everything, and eventually made it to a, a well-regarded NCAA team, and scouts were showing up to the games and Eventually, he goes into the minors, but he gets dropped from his team because, and again, word on the street, they pulled a, a stunt, if you will, but got caught and were removed, essentially, just bad behavior. And, and after that, he was just in the wind, around, doing things, and I haven't heard from him since. I haven't heard from him in many years. I don't. I don't think that I really factor into his thought process much at all. But he doesn't to mind on occasion. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the Sandlot leaves the part out where, where you don't know how your friend died or why your friend died. George, the guy who was, who was so fucking cool that when you lamely admitted that you couldn't swim so well on a fishing trip said, well, I'm a certified lifeguard and a scuba instructor, so if you fall off the boat, I've got you. You know, the friend with the cool cars who, who didn't give a flying fuck about a goddamn thing. Or why Benny didn't make it. You know, what happened to take someone amazingly talented at baseball and make them unfit to play the game? I think the silver lining here is that I did grow up with a few guys who worked hard and who did make it to the show. And one has a couple of rings for it. But the Sandlot is fantasy in that it, it captures some of the, the worst and some of the best parts about being a kid, but it leaves out the parts about growing up. It's beautiful in its way, but a documentary it is not. Almost like a, a still photograph reminiscent of a Norman Rockwell painting. I'm not necessarily bitter about this, and I, I definitely don't hold it 
against the movie, which aimed at kids would have been wildly less successful if everybody ended up in jail or, or dead. Uh, I think I'm just processing this really for the first time in the context of a movie. But this movie wants to consider these things when you watch it as an adult. It promises you the world when you're a kid. Major League Benny was played by uh, young Benny's older brother. Yes, Pablo Vitar played Mike Vitar's older self. And it's this serendipitous sweet synergy that you normally wouldn't expect in the casting of a movie. You know, that's, that's the sandlot right there. One in a million shot. A cold shot, even. Pablo worked as a policeman in L.A., but he died at age 41, leaving behind a wife and three children. I read somewhere that it was cancer, and that's real life. A lot of times, the ball goes over the fence, and you just never get it back. I couldn't end it here, because it seems like I'm down on this movie. I'm not. I love this movie. It's affected me deeply. It is ingrained in my being forever. I really do like it, and I appreciate the liberties that it took with the standard sports movie plot. I can't wait to show it to my kids. I just hope that I make it to that point. I'm going to go ahead and drop a bunch of links in the show notes. There are always things that I come across that are that they, they don't make it into the actual recording of the podcast for one reason or another. But I can say, play Nidhogg if you like the idea of fencing where you each get one move per encounter. That's basically the idea, and it's super cool. There's Nidhogg 2 that I haven't played yet, but I played part one at a bar, and it was very satisfying. Always at CoolMarkD on Twitter. And be nice. Wear a mask. Black Lives Matter. Wild, wild, wildly, wildly in disrepair. I can't say wildly, wildly. I can't. That's not a word that I can say. So I'm, I'm gonna go wildly, right? I'm just gonna scoot over it. Like, hey, Scoob. Say test one two. No, test one two.